Um, today, I want to touch on investing in a diverging world. I've, I've focused a lot in the last uh, uh, several calls on the U.S. I want to talk a little bit more about the emerging economies and uh, what's going on there and how it's all kind of connected in the witch's brew we have kind of developing here. But since the Fed and other central banks acted back in March of 2020, we've been very positive on the U.S. and the global economy, but primarily the U.S. for two particular reasons. One, we had great cyclical strength due to the fiscal and monetary stimulus that was massive. And I've said repeatedly, it's now over 50 percent of our GDP is what we committed here. Europe did something similar. Japan is even higher. Um, China is doing different types of much more targeted stimulus, but the major economies were really supporting that. Um, and then you add to it the secular uh, opportunities of the digital transformation and other climate transformation, the opportunities that are going to come from all that. So while the secular themes remain very much intact, um, we are starting to see some strains, particularly in the emerging markets over the last 12 months. Um, China has their own issues, but a lot of Latin America has some real challenges. So I want to take you through some of those. But um, I think this cyclical strength uh, that we had is starting to uh, uh, start to decline and fade. And we're going to start to see more and more challenges coming as we shift uh, policy, policy regimes right now. Um, the global slowdown has been underway. I mentioned the emerging economies have been tightening for some time. That's going to continue, but they're also getting hit with just higher uh, global yields on the short end. And also you add to that uh, stronger inflation readings and higher oil prices, and it's not a great setup for them. So let's take a look about where we were and where we're going. So this is from last summer from the IMF. They projected that global growth would be uh, strong last year at 6%, but declining by over 1% this year. And you can see how this was broken down. This was in July of this year. And if to take it further to go into regions, this is what the IMF was projecting. And that would basically give you a global economy of uh, moving from about $87 trillion in uh, 2019 on its way to uh, 90, almost $95 trillion last year, going up to maybe 100 to $102 trillion this year. So still strong growth but very uneven. And I think one of the challenges that you're going to see is um, big slowing in China and in a lot of the Latin American nations. And then in other areas, it's going to be very mixed. So fast forward, I just saw a report from the World Bank that came out last week, and they've changed their numbers. So shifting from the IMF to the World Bank, different numbers, but similarly directional. Uh, global growth is decelerating and it will, should continue for uh, some time. What are the factors impacting that? Well, obviously, COVID. Uh, the change in, in fiscal support is a big one. We had, I think, 55 emerging economies have central bank uh, tightening actions last year, all while the U.S. was still easing. It's pretty safe to say now that um, the U.S. Has, was too stimulative, probably for a little too long. On the monetary side, if because of the fiscal stimulus that came in. If we're only doing the monetary, it probably wouldn't have been too much, but we were moving towards a time to change. When you added the massive amounts of fiscal stimulus on top of that, we think that's created some pretty 
um, interesting uh, dynamics on the inflation side and that the Fed was not fully factoring in. And now they're starting to unwind. At the same time, it looks like our our fiscal policy is going to slow down if they get anything through at the Build Back Better program. So there is still risk, and that's going to push more strains onto the emerging economies. I'm about to call. Welcome, Jack. Um, When you look at some of the emerging economies here, you see some different headwinds. They have a health care issue that's carrying through to their vaccination uh, challenges. You have uh, some really bad uh, monetary and fiscal policies coming at a time that they really can't afford it. And what that's setting up for is um, challenges if there is a hard landing in any of these countries the governments don't really have the wherewithal to step in and pull them out again. So that's going to create a challenge. Um, and the big challenge is the economic scarring when you have a decade of challenges. I'm going to show you some numbers on this. Um, but they really don't have much room to, to work against their problems from a, a fiscal perspective. They're in a bad spot from a monetary perspective. And the more the dollar strengthens, the more expensive their dollar-related debts get to service, which puts more strains on them. On top of deep gender and income inequality issues that are promoting more populism, which creates some changes in policies which move them off and kind of waste the money that was put out there. And then you add to it the climate challenges are creating all sorts of distortions in commodity prices, which throws them off from their their core program. So it's really difficult to set up a long-term uh, recovery plan in emerging economies when the governments are changing, when the needs are so different, and when you're really a, a victim to uh, the leading economies' policies, how that works out. So let's take a look at where they were and where they're going. And this is a kind of a fascinating look at uh, the average growth rates by region for the uh, decade of 2010 to 2019. That's what the uh, diamonds are. And you can see that very few places are at or above those levels. So you have, you know, basically uh, South Asia, the emerging economies were surpassed that last year. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, EAC uh, is the other one that's out of that's out of whack. But you can see so many places like uh, the uh, Middle East or other areas, Latin America, that are still far off from getting there. And I think. East Asia and the Pacific, you can see the biggest gap there. That's a real issue of how do they get back to pre-19 levels. This is the scarring that we're talking about that's going on. If you look at it differently, the gap to get to uh, pre-pandemic levels for their GDPs is still quite high, and that's particularly high for um, uh, the sub-Sahara Africa and the South Asia uh, markets, but also Latin America as well and the Caribbean. So we have some real challenges for the emerging economies to get back. And a lot of the policies of the developing world are creating even greater strains on the emerging markets. So that's one of the challenges we're going to be faced with. And climate is a big part of it. So this is the first year that the percentage of countries in these regions will get to pre-pandemic per capita GDP levels. And this is saying that we got a real issue for a lot of these people won't be getting there till beyond 2023. That's where the economic scarring comes in and why it's so hard for some of these countries to get out of their uh, situations right now. This is another look at vaccination, how many doses they've secured for the regions. Then it's their courses um, 
uh, that have been delivered and the numbers that are fully vaccinated. And in some areas, they got pretty decent rates, but in other areas, it's terrible. And uh, and this is party inequality. You add to that a weak healthcare system on top of it, and you get systems that are overwhelmed in countries that don't have great finances to support it. And you get this kind of perpetual cycle that's creating bigger divergences, which is a real issue. And that's led to debt to GDP getting worsening. And while this is a bad picture, it's actually the worst of this is with China. China, I think, has had among the leading nations one of the largest growths in their debt to GDP of anybody. So I think that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. And fortunately, China is very good about managing their issues for themselves. And I think they're very proactive in that right now. But I think we're still going to see the fallout. Was it uh, maybe they're, they got a little over their skis? That's going to slow down global growth considerably. With <laughs> the question is, can the U.S. step up and fill the void? The other issue that's really a big problem for a lot of the emerging economies is commodity price movements because they're either takers or, or uh, makers of commodities. And which side they're on will determine whether they're benefiting or not. But as the global economy slows down, I think we're going to see in a lot of these areas a slowing of uh the commodity price increases that we've seen and even starting to see declines, except maybe in the areas that are so keyed towards uh, uh, the digitalization process uh, that we've talked about and the transitions that are going on. So I just want to switch a little bit to the rest of the world and uh, and really focus on Russia, Europe and the Ukraine. Um, clearly, the market's pricing in some problems here. What the probability is, it seems low right now, but it's hard to tell with Russia. The West might be more forceful in their response than Russia's counting on, hoping that Europe kind of slows down the U.S. But if we denied Russian banks access to the SWIFT system, uh, that's going to be a real that will hurt in a big way. The question is, can NATO get fully behind it? In particular, where's Germany going to come out on this? And I think that's going to be one of the interesting dynamics at play with the transition from Merkel to new leadership. How does how does Germany uh, fit in this? They've been very close to Russia on one hand, and uh, how that plays out is something we're going to have to watch. We're already starting to see strains uh, with energy inflation in Europe. I think that's going to continue. And I'm going to show you some charts on that uh, worsening. Um, we think it's going to disrupt trade and the West if they do move in, and that's going to create some even greater strains on the European prospects. And I'm wondering right now uh, how well the European institutional makeup from its original design is going to be able to work through the problems that I think are coming for the world going forward. And that's always been one of the issues we've questioned about the European project is do the institutions match to the uh, nation's needs and the conflicts that are inherent in the um, uh, governing institutions for the EU versus the country's needs are at odds. And uh, we think that's going to worsen. And I think that's a big challenge for dealing with the Russian uh, 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 threats. And I think that's one of the things that Russia's really focused on um, taking advantage of. If they do cut supplies as a response, uh, we're already seeing problems there. Um, but one of the things that we are hearing is they might not act till after the Olympics because they don't want China to be upset with them for disrupting a signature event for that nation. So that may push things off a little bit. Just quickly uh, on oil, uh, which is moving up, and Goldblink came out with their announcement that they could see $100 oil. Um, oil is a global 
uh, market. But when you look at natural gas, natural gas is very local, and that gets to the transportation issues with it. But look at uh, the blue line is European natural gas prices. Uh, the red line is the U.S. natural gas prices. And the divergence between the two just shows you the fragility that we're facing right now uh, with that system. So um, I do think we're we're really seeing this going to continue to be a problem for Europe and for their leadership. And um, you're starting to see shifts in uh divides there. And the role of NATO is one of the governing institutions that we have to see. Are the governing institutions set up post-World War II structured to deal with uh, the current world problems and world dynamics that we have? And I think there's got to be some rejiggering uh, of them to get them to work right. And it's going to be particularly important for the emerging economies as we come out of this. So, um, you know, our views haven't changed much. We are cognizant of the emerging economies, but we focus more on the U.S. and its impact. And uh, we do most of our investing with U.S. stocks, so that's not going to be a challenge. I think there will be some really interesting um, private opportunities in a lot of these areas, particularly in the themes we all know and love and talk about all the time here. But I think some of the traditional uh, industries are going to really be challenged in a lot of these uh, uh emerging economies, and also in Europe right now. I think there's some real issues going on. We see the U.S. driving global growth, China worrying about themselves, and really not caring as much about the rest of the world right now. They'll care more uh, when they solve their own issues. We're still going to have good growth, though, and that's going to be the thing that people have to keep an eye on. But the unevenness of it, I think, is going to be the challenge. And I've said this for some time on these calls, but I think there's three inequalities that we have to deal with all the time. We have country inequality, we have company inequality, and then we have the individual inequalities that exist. And all three of those are, I think, worsening. And I think they're all things we have to deal with. But from an investment perspective, you want to be really careful. And there's been a lot of talk about value versus growth and growth versus value. I don't think that's the right way to look at the world right now. And I think for investors, we have to be very careful not lumping all high multiple stocks as problems and all uh, low multiple stocks is great opportunities. I think that's going to lead people down a, a bad path. Even with rates moving up, we think they're going to remain historically low. And as the U.S. moves up rates, um, that's going to put more pressures on the other economies as it'll attract more money into the U.S., which we think will have the effect of mitigating rates over time. So um, not an easy market. One, it's easy to get whipsawed in if you're if you switch your focus all the time. We view it as focus on the secular grow growers with reasonable growth prospects and revenue, and that's the place to be uh, for the for the foreseeable future. So, Mark, I'll stop there and open it up to comments. That's great. I do. Well, any any quick comments, questions? I have a question. So, uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Stephen, uh, for the overview. I appreciate it. I had a question about the, uh, I thought it was interesting how you're talking about the inequalities on the three levels. And I was interested in how you're measuring individual inequalities. Oh, we just use the, uh, the standard mess that the government uses. Um, but I think it's really, I, I think they're looking at per capita as much as anything else. But I think the real inequalities there start with education. And we've all known that. But in the U.S., depending on the part of the country you live in, the source of uh, uh, funding for the schools could be property taxes and whatnot, and that just by by design creates massive inequalities, and we're not really working to solve them very well right now. 
Um, so we look at education as one of the big inequalities. Um, we are we are following the numbers and the metrics from uh, you know gender and and uh, age and all that. We look at, at the multiple levels of that. Um, so I, I think we're we're not doing anything different there, but I think the challenges are are worsening. And and I think the other thing is culturally in a lot of these countries, the starting point is so bad for for uh, women and others that you know. I don't know how you can solve them cultural issues without major changes in these countries. So, can I just pick up on your question, Aaron? Because um, I wanted to. We had MLK Day yesterday, and I asked Chance Patterson to join, uh, who's with uh, the King Center. Chance, can you? Are you there? I don't know if you can come off. Uh, there you are. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, so ch- chances it won't. He may not introduce himself this way, but uh, I come. We were roommates in Cleveland, and I come back, and he's like employee number six. That were you with uh, XM or Sirius? I can't remember which XM. one. XM. XM. And then he later was Oprah's right hand on the communication, and now he's helping the King Center on communication. So, if there was ever a person to reflect on MLK, would be you, Chance, among an elite few. So I just. You, we just you just heard the question about inequality. You know, you may, maybe just how do you see things today, 2022? You know, in, in light of uh, Martin Luther King's legacy. Well, I think uh, Steve was right. I mean, I think until we make a, um, you know, until we shift priorities. I mean, our theme this year for the King Holiday Observance Week at the King Center has been um, shifting priorities to create the beloved community. And the beloved community is this um, concept of if we are um, bent on the path towards justice, creating a just, peaceful, humane, and equitable society, an equitable world, um, you know, that, that would result in the creation of the beloved community. And, you know, to even begin to take steps towards that and w- where we would have that, that equity and that equality and the, uh, access to education for all and, and eliminating hunger and access to healthcare, all those things that we, uh, would want for everyone. Um, you know, we have to shift our priorities. And I think, um, you know, you said it right, even with the education system in the U.S., as long as it's based primarily on the property taxes that are collected in the areas near these schools, you're going to have schools that are, you know, much higher quality than others. And so, you know, we look at it as if, um, you know, if MLK was able to get the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed uh, in in that era where, um Although as dark as it seems now, it was it was it was darker then. Um, certainly, we can get the Voting Rights Act passed again here today. Certainly, we can deal with the systemic inequalities that we all are very aware of and we see every day. And and as you know, he just discussed. Ultimately, the greater economy and greater society loses when you have these inequalities. When you have these uh, inequities because you have a, you know, you have a significant population that 
isn't able to reach its full potential. And so um, that's what we focus on. How do we create large scale change? Not not protesting in the moment. Not we're not we're not a single issue organization. We are looking at society's biggest problems and saying, okay, what is the strategy as as a as a nation as a community to deal with them? Hey, hey uh, Mark, I've got a question for Chance. If it's okay, this is Rob Colorado. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It, Chance, just you know, your points are well taken. Can you speak a little bit about um, your funding, meaning um, you know, post social unrest, um, or just sort of more historically, has funding and you know, sort of voluntary engagement, those type of things, has it been steady or has it been volatile? For the King Center itself, yeah. No, it's been it hasn't been steady. It's 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 grown. In the recent years, uh, certainly, I think, um, you know, in some ways, this whole no- notion of training people in the strategies of nonviolence, you know, was not clearly articulated. I think it was hard for corporations to get their arms around it. But we've done better in recent years. And I think certainly the, you know, the George Floyd and BLM phenomenon has, you know, opened some eyes and said, you know, this, this whole notion of civil rights and, uh, social justice, this, this isn't some, um, utopian fantasy concept. This is actually real life. Like if, if you could teach people how to cope with each other in a, in a way that's nonviolent, if you can, if you can work through how to, uh, navigate tough conversations, those, those are skills. Those are, those are life skills. Those are workplace skills. Those are leadership skills. And so the, the corporations in particular are becoming more interested in investing in those types of skills. And we happen to be, you know, very good at helping people um, apply those uh, skills and, and doing it in a way that's scalable within these organizations. So that's a long way of saying, you know, the the world has kind of come back to us in a, in a way where it's not just – you know, I'll be a little impolitic and say, for instance, the, the BLM movement, you know, that was really a lot of protesting, right? But they, they didn't have a legislative or policy strategy. How do you, how do you, how do you translate the, the marching into changes in law, right? And that's, that's a big deal. I mean, you had a lot of people who were very upset and very committed, but where did they go? And that's not a criticism. Yeah. I'm <laughs> saying, you know, we, we're, we're helping these organizations, we're helping these companies figure out how do they invest in social impact and have, invest in social justice to actually create an outcome in, in, yep. in policy and law and, and in the behavior of their staff? So yep. things are, we, we, we could always use more funding. We, we just launched a, an online version of our training for the first time. That's, that's called Nonviolence 365 online. So that'll be a way to reach more people. But, um, it, it, you know, it, it had been choppy for, for a while, yes. Yeah, and just the quick thought there, and Steve, you may have bigger thoughts. The integration to ESG, um, I think we have to be cautious of, you know, this word greenwashing and not it just being a short-term pop, but it being more of a developed strategy and thinking long-term to integrate policy. So thanks. Yeah, that's a – ESG is a tough one, um, because of the lack of clarity on standards, um, and it kind of takes issues like, like Chance was just talking about and make it 
some number or metric as opposed to a, a change. And I, I wonder is that is, and I was going to ask Chance this question. Do you think the politicians are are adding to the problem or helping it right now? Because I worry about the political divisiveness making things worse, not better. So how do you think about well, that? I, well, I think that, uh, you know, as, as we've been approached about, let's take the voting rights issue, uh, that, you know, the bills that are before the Senate right now, you know, we, we've expressed that there seems to be a communication problem. You know, I think, um, one thing that among the many things you could say about King, you know, he, he had a, he had a gift for making things digestible and simple and clear. And, you know, in my view, the, the, this, this entire voting rights act and, and re-enabling the original act and what is it, what does it allow for the justice department to go in and examine policies that have been passed at the local level? I mean, it's very, it, I'm a lawyer and this stuff becomes very complicated. And so we've, we've expressed you have to keep this simple. Let's simplify the, um, let's simplify the story. And so you may have noticed that the, there was some commentary from the administration just in the last couple of days where they, they tried to quantify what if we, if we continue with the restrictions that have been imposed at the local level and seem to be, you know, on track to go wide across country, how many people who voted last election would in theory be prevented from voting this time around? You know, they're, they're, you know, they're quantifying that. That was a suggestion we had because until you can actually say 10 million people are, are, are now at risk of not being able to vote, then that gives me, now I have something to hold on to. But if you're just talking about how racist the Republicans are or, or, or whatever, you know, name calling and all these things. It just doesn't go anywhere. So we try and, you know, our, our first step in the nonviolence philosophy in the, in the strategy is, you know, we don't, we don't comment on day one. We typically do our research first so we can understand the issue and then come back with a, a meaningful response. And so I, I think that's our, that's our charge to the political establishment. Let's give people meaningful information. Chance, you, you promised to come back more, right? I will. I wanna, this, this is recorded, so I just want to make sure everybody – I'm using what Jack Wyant uh, does to me. You know, yeah, you, you baited me, man. I'm, I'm, you know, now it's on the record. I, I would love to, and I, you know, I appreciate the platform. I think, uh, you know, to, yesterday was – you know, we did have the vice president speak at the uh, at the Ebenezer Church Service – and, uh, you know, we also had some Republicans speak. And I think, um, the more we can actually talk about the issues and give it, give the information to people in, in, in a, in a way they can understand how it affects their own lives. That's the key. But this, this, uh, name calling and, and all that nonsense, I think, you know, we'll, we'll get nowhere. So that's the hope in 2022. We can, you know, have meaningful conversations. I appreciate you having me, Mark. I know you have a hard stop, so thank you. All right. Appreciate everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Jens. So, so Stephen threw out a lot of data to us. And uh, Any other questions on on these aspects that Chance Stephen just covered or others?
Don't be shy. Everyone's anxious to get to Naples to start playing pickleball. Well, well the, pro- Mark, the yeah. problem, Mark, the problem is Stephen's goal, if you were to analyze his behavior and not ask him his goal, it was in all likelihood obfuscation. And therefore, the silence is a derivative of the, of the obfuscation that he most successfully uh, accomplished. And I, I think, however, we're supposed to have a positive view, net net, of all of all of that stuff. Oh, no, not those, all of it, Jack. Steve, well, Stephen, you are starting to back off on, you know, uh, inflation being moderate. Um, I mean, it looks like it is cranking up. Uh, I, I'm still in the I'm still in the camp that we're peaking on inflation now, so that hasn't right. changed. Well, we would prefer that view, so let's hold to it then. Okay. Uh, I don't, John, think, you I don't think that's how you get there, John, Jack, but we'll see what we can do. Yeah, so Mark, I, I think it was it was great. Uh, it's great that you had chance on, and uh, obviously very appropriate week in which to do that. I agree with Rob uh, and with Stephen that greenwashing and lack of uniform standards for what is ESG is, uh, that's a challenge. That's a really big challenge. And maybe it's an even bigger challenge um, for impact companies to come up with a combined for-profit impact model that moves the needle. Like, so we're, we're, if we're, if we're saying that the private sector has the ability to more forcefully put a shoulder into the wheel to address some of the countries in the world's biggest problems, uh, that requires impact innovation. And I think one of the challenges is, uh, is the private sector fully realizing its potential to do that. And so I would, I would also nominate that as a, as a great challenge for the impact economy. It's interesting. I don't know if anyone's read, uh, uh, Larry Fink's, uh, letter that he put out, but, uh, he's taking on kind of the transition to affecting the, uh, the transitions that we need to make, um, and getting skewered for, because he's being honest about it takes playing both sides of it to get there. Um, so in, in being trying to be a leader for stakeholder, holder capitalism, he's getting skewered for being a leader in stakeholder capitalism. So, uh, it's a fascinating dynamic. It's, it's one of those you can't win, but, um, part of this is that you, you can't get to the energy transition without still using fossil fuels to get the transition right. And we have to find a better balance in the conversations. But I, I thought his his getting skewered for being honest about how difficult this is um, for companies and for us and for managers as well to make this transition is really going to be interesting to see how that plays out. We did an exercise. I, I, I pulled up uh, one of their ESG funds and compared it to our flagship strategy for the top holdings which we don't do a formal ESG overlay on and you can't get away from the 15, the top 15 looks like any, almost any U S equity portfolio and names. So there really is not that much differentiation between the ESG top holdings and almost any portfolio in the U S is top holdings right now. I think that's the problem with public markets. Part of to John's point, I think if you're going to make real impact, I mean, you can make an impact there. Um, but that's still not, it's, it's, a, it's a company like, like John, it's the, and it's venture, um, where we're going to really make this impact. 
So that's why we're dedicated to getting a portfolio of, of venture funds and companies that will be most impactful. Um, but people like Aaron have to measure it. Um, and yeah, I remember our first impact event four years ago, the question to the panel was, you know, how do you measure impact? And we had like eight different, six panelists and six different answers. Um, one was, but now we've got the measuring crews coming and, and we, we, if you look at our, our YouTube videos on these, we've got some good people, but it's still not uniform. And I was actually curious. I, I think Chance answered a different question than you asked, Stephen, but he's, I would, I'd be curious to have his view on how to re, uh, advise companies, public or private, to, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, to, to engage and answer that question, but I'll, I'll pause. Can I ask John a question? John, at Kleiner, yeah. you guys did the work on impact pretty early, right? You, that was your, your baby back in the early yes. 2000s, I recall. Yes. How do you view the progress from then to now and what do you think needs to change? Well, on, uh, it's a great question. I, I'll, uh, a lot of paradoxes in, in the world today, but let me, let me, uh, report first just the breathtaking sea change that's taken place in the markets. And Stephen, you and I have talked about this before. I call it the triple up shift where there's been a breathtaking shift in consumer investor and worker demand for impact that's put enormous pressure on companies to at least declare ESG. And I think that's why the business roundtable did a 180 on Milton Friedman Mm -hmm. two and a half years ago from shareholder value. No, no, no. We're for stakeholder value. Changed our mind. Uh, and so the, the suddenness and the dramatic nature of that shift in the data statistically is, uh, as I say, breathtaking. And on the other hand, uh, the world's biggest problems are big. And so, and so it's, uh, and the existing ways of addressing them, uh, have been insufficient. And, but they're massive, massive problems. And, uh, so it's uh, it's going to take a lot more, I think, from the private sector to, like I said earlier, fully put its shoulder into the wheel. So uh, amazing, amazing shift exo- endogenously from the market. That, that wasn't an external event. That was that was consumers and investors and younger workers saying, no, no, we we want to have a career combining paycheck and purpose, or we want to make an investment that, or, you know. Or we want to buy the product off the shelf. And in the data, that's overwhelmingly shifted. Uh, and there's so much more that needs to be done. Thank you. Hey, I just want to add a couple of points, um, both to what John said and, and to Stephen. I think, um, Stephen, when you're talking about, you know, the top 15 companies being, you know, in, in everybody's portfolio, I think the real way when you start looking at it is actually do sector analysis, right? So that you're looking at how a company uh, adheres to the ESG metrics um, according to their sector, right? Because an energy company should be judged differently than a healthcare company versus a technology company, et cetera, especially when you're trying to match them up to the UN SDGs, right? Which is, mm-hmm. for lack of a better framework uh, right now, is the one that's most popular, especially in the S uh, category where we do our work. So I think I think the real key there is uh, sector analysis. Uh, and so that you're comparing like companies to like companies. Um, and to kind of what John was saying, the point I was going to 
mentioned before, is that you're really seeing a convergence, right? So you're seeing top-down, um, you know, from the CEOs um, because they're starting to have their pay being, you know, uh, matched or mapped to the SG targets. You're having employees, for sure, because they're the ones who actually understand the culture that's going on in the organization. And usually there's a, a pretty wide differential between what the C-suite thinks and their sort of aspirational values and the actual values of the key stakeholders like employees. You're seeing consumers coming from the side, and then you're seeing the board come in with their own mandates um, according to risk management and, and strategy goals. And so I think that's where it becomes very interesting is when you're taking a look at all the stakeholders stakeholders involved being pushed primarily by the investors who are, you know, trying to make some sort of differential and, and, and kind of uh, way through the greenwashing that's going on. So I think that's where it becomes very interesting is when you take a look at a measurement device that's looking at all the stakeholders and how they're actually weighing into ESG and affecting the outcomes of an organization. Aaron, I think it's a great point to look at sectors separately because you can't have the green revolution without the commodities that are required for it, which are really dirty to get out of the ground. So do you vote them as green energy positive or green energy negative? And we're going to have those conflicts that we're going to have to deal with um, for quite some time. And that was part of what Larry Fink was trying to point out is we're not divesting of fossil fuel companies if they're essential to make the transition work because you need the energy to get there. And that's part of Europe's problem right now is what did they, a couple of weeks ago, they shut down three of the six uh, nuclear facilities in Germany. Um, but they're not ready for the other stuff to back it up. They're waiting on, you know, natural gas from Nord 2 pipeline and all that. that those mismatches are what we have to work for. And I think to John's point, they are long, long, big problems that require long solutions, not quick solutions. Ruth Aaron you know, also. Oh, sorry. I'm with it. I'm with Aaron also on identifying the sectors. And really, if you want to identify companies that are innovating, who are small, who are below the radar, there's data that can identify them. And so doing it on a sector by sector basis and raising awareness <laughs> of what they're doing to the larger entities, to countries, um, I think that that's a helpful thing to do. Um, so I just wanted to echo what Aaron's saying and take it in slightly different levels. So, I think for John, hey John, I mean, just just we talked about this in New York to those last two points, and Steve's point of the top 15 funds being kind of similar now. The point of Fink from BlackRock, in when this in more aggressive approach, wouldn't you say some of that is just him being a little bit disruptive to differentiate him from? Because at the end of the day. He's got to serve a lot of these uh, LPs that are kind of going by this beaten drum. That's you know that's you know hitting all all the top fifteen. That's why they're a little bit more similar. It's it's over five hundred billion of ten trillion of their assets now. So he is kind of talking his book a little bit. I'll uh, so Rob, but, really good point. Uh, one thing that I've I've said in uh, speeches that I've given is I think it's very challenging for a publicly traded company to really move the needle on ESG because they're a little bit very, actually a lot of it caught between a rock and a hard place. So the, the rock is the ESG pressure from the markets and the hard place is the short termism of the public equity market. They promised EPS of 34 cents a share next quarter. If they don't deliver, the CEO may lose her, his job. And so you, you have this, this friction, this tension, 
in public companies that makes it very, very, very difficult for them to actually move the needle on ESG. And that's not as true in the private uh, sector because there isn't the degree of short-termism. And now people are working on permanent capital and so forth to relieve pressure on that. The other, uh, Stephen, to your point, a way to relieve the pressure on, uh, your, you know, the conundrum of, well, how do we do the transition without doing mining of mm-hmm. the, you know, everything that's needed to create the, the green revolution? And I think there's, uh, overwhelmingly in the people working on climate solutions, there's been a focus on the reduction of future emissions solar panels and wind and batteries and so forth, which is fantastic and very necessary. But there's also, I think, an an underexplored category of the sequestration of historic carbon that's in the atmosphere today. And the soil is, uh, those of you that know me at ShareDex, we're doing something about it through regenerative agriculture, sequestering out of the atmosphere by increasing the carbon cycle of uh, plant in a very healthy non-GMO way. And there are a lot of other opportunities like that that are underexplored. And I think, again, the private sector has a great opportunity. And then the public companies will buy them into their portfolio, and then they'll be mixed in whether yeah. they can be rated as DSP or not. <laughs> so. Jim, Jim, Jim Hawk, hand up. Hey, uh, so, Stephen, uh, interested in your view here. So, um, I often think that there is a subtle but a real difference between ESG and impact. Um, and I, the way that I kind of think about this is that ESG is almost do no harm, and impact is actually kind of a proactive uh, addressing of ways to mitigate some of the climate risk and whatever else uh, surrounds impact. What, what do you do? You think that uh, there's some term of art here? Uh, in terms of how the markets, uh, re, you know, view the difference between impact as a term and ESG as a term? Uh, well, I, I do, but there's many people on the call better able to answer this, starting with John and some others. But uh, the, my take on it is uh, ESG is um, kind of following uh, loosely laid out uh, guidelines as to what qualifies in each one. And impact is... Uh, around those three categories where impact is just making the world a better place for me. And I I think it very simplistically, and I think a lot of companies are making an impact and don't get credit for it, but others not to the degree that the specificity that John is. When you, when you hear John with his, uh, and John can tell you very clearly, they have a couple things they're focused on when they're doing what they're doing. And that's, I think that's going to be the difference. I think ESG is just too many different elements in it in one category to me to be easy to easy to report. So I'll turn it over to John to give his take on it. He's closer to that than I am. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the one of the and others have said this, so I'm just parroting what other smarter people than me have said in this call, is there's a lack of common currency in broad impact metrics across every sector, which is why people are saying take it sector by sector. So, for example, what's the relative impact value of an avoided gigaton of carbon in the atmosphere against lifting a 1,000 people out of poverty? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder. And so I don't think there will ever be common agreement 
on how to quantify those because that's subjective and different people for good reasons have different opinions on the relative importance and value. So that's, uh, that's one. The other, the other is in finance, everybody knows that uh, the classical way to value a company is it's discounted future cash flow and an impact. We're not doing that. I mean, that's not the discussion. It's rear view mirror which means for a very early stage impact company, its impact value is zero. Even if it has some very breakthrough technology or innovation or whatever that has great promise, uh, it's valued at zero because there, there isn't a discounted impact flow concept, which it brings its own challenges. How do you quantify that? How do you come to agreement? But just the methodology is different and maybe it should be. But so th- those are some of the the great challenges that have uh, created the uh, the problem of coming to a uniform set of impact metrics. Yeah, yeah, John, I'll I'll, I'll emphasize your your point. I I was actually looking into this like 30 years ago when when I worked at at BGI, and it, it was it was as much a morass back then as it is now. And you know, so much of it is policy preferences. You know, some people have an emphasis on this. Some people have an emphasis on that. They can't agree on, you know, which one is, is more important. But, you know, to the, to the impact point, um, you know, if, if you, if you look at what the, the people at Mars, you know, for, as an example, you know, have done with their kind of economics of mutuality concept and, you know, trying to develop that, you know, their, their pilot program in that area was specifically designed to realize those cash flows like up front. And it was a, it was a very business driven decision, but it also had a greater good component, you know, to it. And, you know, there they, they realized, you know, meaningful business increases in, in sales and profits. And at the same time, were being able to lift communities uh, that had been literally ignored, uh, you know, out of poverty. And this was a pilot project that was done um, in Africa. So I think that, I think that well thought out, you know, impact programs and, and, uh, and opportunities can really make, you know, very meaningful differences. And, you know, in, 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 you know, on my scorecard, you know, that's, that's where it counts because you have, you have people, uh, receiving, you know, tangible economic benefit that perhaps hadn't done, you know, that wouldn't be able to do so otherwise if it had not been, you know, for that initiative. And I think, I think that's where the rubber meets the road and, and where there is so much wonderful potential. Bill, the interesting thing from when you were looking back then to now is what, what is being measured now versus then the, the, right. The social responsible investing back then was, really around vice stuff and, you know, you know, the pharma, big pharma. Now it's a completely different direction. So you want to just touch on that a little bit? And you, you've looked at it for 30 years. It's very different now than it was back then. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's it's different, but there's a lot that's still the same. Uh, because I think, you know, one, once again, I, I think, a, you know, forgive me for being a little cynical, but I think a lot of ESG is, is again policy preferences. Uh, you know, certain groups would like to see this as opposed to that. And so, you know, 
it it becomes difficult, you know, to measure, you know, those types of things. You know, how how do you measure that benefit? Uh, it it is as much a problem now as as it was back then. And and you have you had you know back then you had a lot of groups, you know, trying to obtain shelf space on on the podium in order to get their their agenda, you know, put forward. And you know, all all fine and good. It's just that, you know, my 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 report back to the the president of of, of BGI is that, you know, we're we're going to please some people and we're going to please no nobody all the time, uh, if if we try to go down that and, you know, and ultimately so, probably not not the best for our investors. But 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 you know, just so, one thing there, Bill, is a company like Mars that the, the core product at the end of the day is candy. And, you know, I think they, you know, this is part of a correction of their model. They've gone into things like pet foods and more healthier areas. But some of that is like some of the tobacco companies or even some of the beverage uh, uh, or the, uh, the liquor companies in terms of improvement, um, in terms of they needed more balance of their offerings. So I'm just saying at the, at, at the beginning of it, there's a little bit of a um, there's a little bit of a, um, uh, a, a bias toward the need to change, uh, just given the core product offering. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly, uh, you know, one, one could take issue with that, but I think, I think more importantly, and if, and if you talk to them, and I think also at the front end for them, this, it was to serve as a template for how, you know, how could they build out their business better and, and have it have a broader impact, both financially as well as, you know, socially, if, if you will. So I, I think it's one of those things that's sort of like, you know, here are the instructions, you know, insert A, B, or C, you know, whatever, whatever you want. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a mindset and a process that they've been able to put together that can be replicated in other sectors. So, you know, point well taken, point well taken. But again, I think the emphasis well, there and the, and the takeaway is, is the template that they've been able to, uh, to put, put in place. So we put in the chat, uh, like a lot of these subjects, the nice thing, we were just doing our 2022 predictions. I'm able to go back and see what someone predicted a year ago. We never recorded our sessions. We're recording everything in Naples and Miami. We record, uh, and now we can look. It's also transcribable to see all these great messages and learn. So measurement has been, it was a question four years ago. It was a little panel last year. Let's do a two-hour dive on it. We got very smart people. Now Aaron's in the conversation. We got, you know, we talk about uh, transition energy. If you saw what, it was the closest thing. We're always so cordial here. It was the closest thing to like a disagreement. God forbid. Valerie Rockefeller, no fossil fuels. Eric Lindbergh, I'm not going to take 30, 40% of the stocks off the table to hit my, to establish my returns. And what's the measurement? Let's say it's carbon footprint savings. We could take 5% with a natural gas to gasoline conversion company that is in our orbit. So just as is name calling, I just think we just have to have like a, you know, constructive approach, but, but informed approach that like, I think now we're better informed than four years ago. Um, Mike White, I just saw you jump on camera. You're doing a lot of impact, impactful things. You wanna, did you come on camera to, to share something? 
And I know Julie, you're off, you're on camera and off, um, off mute. So maybe you want to share as well. I've just enjoyed the conversation and John and uh, Bill and, and, and Rob and everyone's contributions and uh, uh, the gentleman who was on earlier. And I, I think the issue of common, of common currency is really the issue. If you, if your social impact thesis is to provide more economic opportunities for black Americans, how do you measure that against reducing carbon footprint? You know, they're really separate issues. And, and I think John pointed out something that's fairly important in that a lot of this is in the venture space right now, and it's hard to it's hard to measure from a discounted cash flow standpoint. And it's also it feeds into something that he recognized of the sea change that's taken place in the past three or four years is you have one incremental improvement at a time. And as a venture investor, I sort of look at it. Oops. As a venture investor, I sort of look at it as, you know, you invest in one black founder at a time. You, you invest in one, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, environmental improvement like natural fiber welding that we had that replaces plastics with plants. But then you feed into, you know, an ancillary, uh, you know, externality that, that may have some negative consequences for the environment. For example, we use more cotton. So how do you make cotton use less water, use less nutrients? Yeah. So there's, so there's, it's a very difficult thing to measure, but I think, you know, is uh, I think Potter Stewart was the justice on pornography. You know, I kind of know it when I see it. No, but well, I know, but I, I was going to, I was going to, that was the quote. That was the answer. One of six panelists answer four years ago. And I wanted to say that we could do better uh, than that. And we I can't. Agreed. Yeah. Sorry, Julie. Yeah. Sorry. I have to drop in two minutes, but super fascinating discussion. And, I find it interesting that there's so much focus on the E in ESG and the S and G doesn't get the same attention. And then when you sit back and look, oh, we're investing in solar panels and wind farms, but where were those created? Places with child labor and forced labor? I mean, are, is everyone looking under the covers of what is the overall impact of these dramatic shifts? I, uh, that is such a great comment, uh, Julie. Can I build on that? Please. I think that, yeah, I think that's right. And I've been swimming in these waters for the better part of 20 years. And what you say is true. Uh, and none of us is diminishing the E in ESG, just to be really clear, myself or you, Julie, or whoever, that's mission critical. We've got to do that. Uh, but w- what about what about the S? What about the G? And why don't we see more of that? And here's, here's an interesting um, thesis, which is that all three are interconnected to a very important degree. And so, uh, for example, uh, Jane Goodall published a book a few months ago called The Book of Hope. And in it, she observed uh, that when she first went to Tanzania to save chimpanzee communities, she realized quickly that she couldn't achieve the mission unless the poverty of the local indigenous communities was alleviated to some degree because they were killing some chimpanzees for the value of the skull and cutting down the trees because there's value in, in timber and so forth, but there was extreme poverty. And so uh, we see that at SharedX too. We work in emer- remote areas of emerging countries and we're trying to deliver a double poverty climate solution because the two are integrated. And if we want the soil to sequester more carbon from the atmosphere, now we need smallholders to come and go regenerative because they grow 70% of the world's food. 
So there's there's now a growing recognition, not, not only where's the S, where's the G, but also if we really want to optimize for E, we need the S and G to come along. Great. Sorry, I need to well, this, this will These themes will, will continue. And, um, you know, but we're, we're about to script out the, uh, the fifth impact summit. So, and all of you, you know, this is open architecture. So whatever subjects interest you, you know, lean in, you know, help form that panel, breakout group. Uh, and each of them also could be their own deep dives. So you, you know how we roll. If, uh, it's a great start off uh, a launching pad to the discussion on today, Mark. Yeah, I always like to say this, this catalyzes this and that. So let's, let, let's, I like to see it happen. Um, you know, for some of this, like you were talking about, you know, Jim Hawk just did social equity in the cannabis world, right? Really shed light on that. Um, it also catalyzes getting people like Chance in, which was great. Right. I've been asking him to come for years, but I want him, I want him to be our publicist for 361 or for our community. Uh, he's got a great, smart approach. Um, so what, you know, I didn't, uh, at the top of the hour, I didn't advertise that we, you know, some of you know about Naples and Miami. There will be an impact panel. There will be a philanthropy, optimizing philanthropy panel. Has a lot of, uh, that one, the impact will have, uh, Tyler Wood, and they have a, a, neg a negative, um, a carbon footprint green bond that they're raising, uh, at the moment. Um, I know that, uh, Ari Kaufman, who's, has the water, you know, sort of democratizing the measurement of, of, uh, lead and water, uh, will be speaking and, and, and others. Um, you know, Eddie Vonderpart from Impact, from Virtue Capital, be there on philanthropy. It's going to focus on human trafficking. Um, and I've been doing these, uh, these, uh, interviews. And so who was it today? Was it today? No, oh, yeah, Erica Lill. What she's supporting, and I invite everyone to share it because it's really helpful, is, um, girls who sort of graduate out of foster programs to help them with their transition because, which, Touches on human trafficking. It's sort of uh, there she is. Hi. By the way, Erica, 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 I need. I couldn't save it. I couldn't share it because I need you to uh, change your privacy settings so I can download it. I have a, yeah, But um, I, I did it for you. Thank you. So sorry to be tardy. No, you're good. Give the same background for your video. What do you, what do you know? But what I want to do is like Rob Horowitz is has a foundation dedicated, interestingly, to two things: foster care and criminal justice. Uh, it's called the Horowitz. He's actually a Michigan grad, John. Um, and Red Lacord's foundation. But I'm just trying to interconnect our world so we can, if you know what everyone's focused on, we can be, you know, more magical and less dysfunctional. Um, and more efficient. It's a real problem. If these girls, you know, at 18, there's some terrible stories. There's a story, the woman runs it. A girl came home from school after her 18th birthday. The family moved, just literally moved. She had no place to be, nowhere to go, didn't trust the system anymore. So this is, this is adds to our homeless problem, our criminal problem. That's to a huge problem. Or, or 
with a little bit of help, we can, you know, potentially have some really productive citizens in our society. So that's all. And it's holistic, right? I mean, giving them a home or housing is one thing, but they need mentors. They need uh, roadmaps, um, education, skills. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, so it's, it's, I, you know, mentoring is so, so key. When we talked about mental health, so all these things are interconnecting to what partly what John was saying. And, uh, thank you. Anyone else? Uh, and thank you for doing that video. It'll go up some, by tomorrow. Oh, thank uh, you. Okay. Hey, Mark. Um, J- Jack, are you going to do another 20, 20 minute, five minute interview? <laughs> hey, Mark, he, keep in mind that as you talk about various resources that have become members of your extended family, uh, we've got the ambassador of hope, none, none other than Andre Norman, who, who spoke, oh, yeah, at yeah, your, spoke at your gathering, uh, last summer. And, and as a result of, of the relationship, is is in essence standing by to play a role going forward. He, yes, he's he was great. He was the one who threw me off because he wouldn't accept my help until I accepted his. Oh. <laughs> what a concept! Um, and here I am at the airport. I just dropped off my son. It, it involved my son, who's on a great course. But Andre was there to be helpful. I really, I would love to do something with him. Um, oh, Christy, hey, you come on camera. this is our time, but this is a community. This is really fitting that you come. Um, can you just introduce yourself? Uh, this is our weekly 11 o'clock that runs, always runs over. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. And I'm in a hotel no. room, so I have a very weird, uh, zoom. Um, I'm in, I'm in an airport. It's okay. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yes, I'm Christy Keekler and, uh, hello. I'm sorry, everybody. I didn't mean to to jump at the end yeah. of your conversation. But I've known Mark. I've been at president of IPI. I was at Family Office Exchange and at MFOs and have worked with uh, families and family offices for a long time. Yeah. No, Christy's the real deal here, guys. She's She's been you know, among the, you know, the top-notch advisors um, across the space. So, uh, and you have a new gig, Christy? Do I understand? I do, but I'm going to tell you first, Mark. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. I get to know first. Okay. Well, this is what we do. We get together and, and someone always kicks it off and then it goes in winding roads. But, um, the theme today was the diverging global economy. So I'll sum it up. Um, we had Chance Patterson from the King Center talk about because one of the parts was inequality. He talked about uh, MLK's legacy and going forward, which led us to uh, voting rights uh, reform, which led us to ESG, which pivoted to measurement, which to the uh, energy transition issues, and um, and I, and I summarized that all of this is for our community to uh, to lean in, whether it's through a summit or a deep dive or whatever we want to do, to shine a light. And then I was making a a shameless plug for for Naples and Miami, um, where many of you will play pickleball for the hundredth time or first time mm-hmm. and uh welcome you all there'll be instruction on saturday for those who's first time and then we'll we'll have impact we'll have philanthropy we'll talk about what's happening in naples Stephen burke will kick it off on 22 we'll have uh we'll talk about nfts and art uh then there'll be a dinner um the next day will be a blockchain extravaganza panel 
pickleball, Miami reception on Sunday. Um, Monday, we have uh, two to six roundtables and reception, and there may be a lunch at Fontainebleau uh, as well. So thank you, everybody. Mark, uh, can joining. I say one really quick thing? Yeah. Um, I listened this morning to uh, uh, Jim Grant is a friend of mine and in current yield, his podcast, he's interviewing mm-hmm. Uh, the author of uh, Lords of Easy Money, who's incredible to thinking about a macro. If anybody wants to get terrified about what's coming on the macro side, I suggest they either read the book or listen to Jim Grant. And, um, okay. and what I'm doing, my next gig, is very much in the values-aligned space, and I couldn't agree that measurement is uh, is more important. So great things you guys are doing, and, and thanks for letting me pop in mm-hmm. the last two minutes of your call. Hey, hey, Mark, ask, ask yeah. Christy if she'd be kind enough to do a summary for the group this weekend. Well, and, so and, and then we can promise in, her that we'll read the book after her summary. <laughs> in, in, if you in, listen to the in, podcast, you'll get all the, all the big themes, so you don't have to read the book. But, but, but my, what if we'd rather hear it from you? <laughs> well, I could do you, that uh, too. It's all good. Well, we are going to have uh, it stream. I have my videographers down there, but um, we, you know, maybe we can twist around and get you down there. But uh, it's or or at some other point we can do it, and uh, or we can invite. What we like to do is go right to the source, have him come, and uh, interact with our community on that subject. 